You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. We're pleased to announce that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Do you have an interest in the Civil War? Founded in 1881, the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War is a congressionally chartered, charitable, fraternal organization that preserves the history and legacy of the Union veterans who fought during the Civil War to preserve the Union and end slavery. When you join, you enter a national network of men who form lifelong bonds, honor their heroic ancestors, and promote historic preservation, education, and patriotism in their communities. Based on the principles of fraternity, charity, and loyalty, they accept both descendants of Civil War veterans and non-descendants. Visit them today at www.suvcw.org or email them at join at suvcw.org. The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 423 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As you guys will recall, we used the last episode to talk about the situation at Chattanooga, especially regarding the Federal's precarious supply situation. And also William Rosecrans' increasingly shaky tenure as commander of the Army of the Cumberland. And then at the end of the last show, Ulysses S. Grant entered the picture, and we said with that development, the campaign for Chattanooga was taking a decisive turn. After the surrender of Vicksburg on July 4, 1863, Grant had had a frustrating summer. His plan for a follow-up offensive against the Gulf Port of Mobile, Alabama, had been set aside by Washington so that troops from his army could be stripped away to provide manpower for other operations. As a disappointed Grant put it, quote, the army was sent where it would do the least good. Then, while visiting New Orleans in early September to talk with Nathaniel Banks about one of those ill-advised operations, Grant had suffered an accident. 
The large, powerful, high-spirited horse he was riding shied at a train whistle, slipped on a slick street, and fell on Grant's left leg. The leg, as he recalled in his memoirs, quote, was swollen from the knee to the thigh, and the swelling extended along the body up to the armpit. The pain was almost beyond endurance. Grant was laid up with this injury for a while, and because he was Grant, people began to whisper about a possible return to, quote, unquote, his former bad habits. A reference, of course, to an unfortunate episode years earlier when a bored and lonely Captain Grant was given to alcoholism while stationed at an out-of-the-way West Coast fort. The gossip was false this time, as gossip generally is, but the whole affair, coming on top of everything else, could only have been extremely frustrating for Grant. Through it all, he could at least take comfort in the fact he was now one of the Union's most successful generals. General-in-Chief Henry Halleck wrote to assure him, quote, You need not fear being left idle. The moment you are well enough to take the field, you will have abundant occupation. That was on October 11th, and Halleck already had a very good idea what the occupation would be. Grant reported for duty at Cairo, Illinois, just in time for the October 16th decision to give him command of the military division of the Mississippi. The following day, Grant received the order to report to Louisville, Kentucky, and he set out immediately to go there by rail. The most direct route took him through Indianapolis, and there, as his train was about to leave the station, a messenger flagged it down to say that a special train from Washington had just pulled in, bearing Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Grant's train waited while Stanton disembarked and came over to join the general and his staff for the rest of the journey to Louisville. Grant and Stanton had never met face-to-face, but had corresponded extensively by letter and telegraph. As the Secretary of War swept into Grant's car, he walked right past Grant and started shaking the hand of the general's puzzled medical director, Dr. E.D. Coteau, saying, "'How do you do, General Grant? I recognize you from your pictures.'" Well, Grant's chief of staff, John Rollins, quickly corrected the error and introduced Stanton to the real Grant. After that awkward beginning, Stanton and Grant spoke as the train rolled across the countryside of southern Indiana. The Secretary of War explained the new command Grant would be taking and showed him two sets of orders from which he could choose. They were identical in setting up the military division of the Mississippi, and differed only in that one set called for leaving the current department commanders in place, with Grant being replaced by William Tecumseh Sherman, while the second set removed Rosecrans from command and elevated George Thomas to lead the Army of the Cumberland. Ulysses S. Grant and William Rosecrans had butted heads in northern Mississippi the previous fall, when Rosecrans had served under Grant. So now, Grant needed no time to make his decision. He told Stanton he would put the second set of orders into effect, which meant Rosecrans would be out and George Thomas would succeed him.
The train bearing Edwin Stanton and Ulysses S. Grant reached Louisville after dark that night in a cold, drizzling rain. As they made their way to the Galt House, the hotel where both would be staying, Grant was still hobbling around on his crutches, and Stanton was nursing a bad cold. They spent the next day in Louisville discussing the situation at Chattanooga and other topics pertaining to Grant's new command. That evening, as General and Mrs. Grant were out visiting relatives who lived in Louisville, Stanton received a message from Charles Dana to the effect that if something was not done immediately, Rosecrans was likely to abandon Chattanooga. This was not, in fact, true, but by this time, Stanton was prepared to believe the worst about Rosecrans, and after receiving this alarming wire from Dana, the Secretary of War was well-nigh beside himself with anxiety, especially since he could not immediately find Grant. High-strung at the best of times, Stanton now grew more and more frantic and began asking everyone he came across, including random hotel guests, where Grant was. About 11 p.m., as the AWOL general and his wife returned from their pleasant evening and neared the Galt house, Grant recalled, quote, Every person we met was a messenger from the secretary, apparently partaking of his impatience to see me. Grant went immediately to Stanton's room, where he found the agitated secretary of war pacing the floor. Stanton filled Grant in on the present crisis, such as it was, and urged him to do something right away. With Stanton in a panic, Grant had the War Department order assigning him command of the military division of the Mississippi wired to Chattanooga that night, along with the news that Rosecrans was out and George Thomas was placed in command of the Army of the Cumberland. Grant directed Thomas to, quote, hold Chattanooga at all hazards. George Thomas was not happy about Rosecrans being sacked, and he resented the implication in Grant's telegram that Chattanooga might be abandoned. But he was a soldier, and he had been given an order, so he accepted command of the army, and as far as holding Chattanooga, he wired Grant, saying, quote, I will hold the town till we starve. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The next day, Stanton started his return journey to Washington, and Grant set out for Chattanooga. On the evening of October 21st, he arrived at Stevenson, Alabama, where Joseph Hooker had his headquarters. Hooker, as you guys will recall, was in command of the reinforcements that had been sent down from the Army of the Potomac. However, those troops hadn't been able to actually go all the way to Chattanooga because an extra 15,000 or 20,000 more mouths to feed there would have pushed the garrison of the town over the edge into outright starvation. Exactly. At any rate, after reaching Stevenson, Grant met with William Rosecrans, who had left Chattanooga within 12 hours of receiving the news of his relief. He explained to George Thomas that, feeling as if he had failed them, he couldn't bear to face the troops, so he left before the news of his relief was announced to them. Now he was on his way to Cincinnati to await reassignment. After reaching Stevenson on October 22nd, Rosecrans met with Grant to pay his respects and to fill Grant in on his ideas about opening a new supply line into Chattanooga. Grant considered Rosecrans' plans excellent, but because of the bad blood between the two of them, he couldn't resist getting in a dig when he later wrote, quote, My only wonder was that he had not carried them out. However, despite Grant's snide remark, it was not entirely Rosecrans' fault that his plans for opening a new supply route into Chattanooga had not yet been put into action. Back in late August, Rosecrans' chief engineer, Brigadier General James St. Clair Morton, expressed his desire to leave the Army. The War Department's approval for his departure was still pending at the time of the Battle of Chickamauga, where Morton was slightly wounded in the hand. In fact, it wasn't until September 30th that his replacement as the Army's chief engineer arrived. Replacing Morton was Brigadier General William F. Smith. Baldy Smith's name ought to be familiar to longtime listeners of the podcast. He was a West Pointer, graduating fourth in the class of 1845, which was well enough to gain him entrance to the U.S. Army's elite Corps of Engineers, where he did well. After the start of the Civil War, Smith had served as a divisional commander in the Army of the Potomac before assuming command of Sixth Corps during the Fredericksburg Campaign. Afterwards, he unwisely chose to involve himself in the tangled politics of that army's high command, becoming a leading figure in a movement to undermine army commander Ambrose Burnside. As a result of his scheming, he lost command of his corps, his promotion to major general stalled in the Senate, and he soon found himself benched and sitting on the war's sidelines. However, in the summer of 1863, being at loose ends, gave Baldy Smith the opportunity to command state militia during the Gettysburg Campaign, when his most notable achievement was holding the town of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, against Jeb Stuart's rebel cavalry until Stuart was forced to break off the action. 
Now his transfer to Chattanooga to replace Morton gave Smith a chance to redeem his career. Baldy Smith would later take much of the credit for saving the Army of the Cumberland, saying that he arrived, sized up the situation, and devised a plan that would reopen the Army's supply lines by taking control of Lookout Valley. Rosecrans, he said, had nothing to do with it. Smith publicized his version of the events of October 1863 in both the post-war press and, at the turn of the century, to the park commissioners of the newly created Chickamauga-Chattanooga National Military Park. So much so that in 1901, a military review board was impaneled to pass judgment on Smith's claim, quote, that the plan to reopen the river line was his and not General Rosecrans. In reality, though, Rosecrans' plans were already well-developed by the time Baldy Smith arrived on the scene. In fact, on September 27th, Old Rosie had laid out the basic concept for Montgomery Miggs, the quartermaster general of the U.S. Army, who just then was in Chattanooga on a tour of inspection. New steamboats were already under construction at Stevenson, Alabama, downstream from Chattanooga on the Tennessee River, and several of the boats captured or sunk when Chattanooga fell into Union hands were now being raised and repaired. When those transports were ready, Hooker's infantry would be used to seize control of Lookout Valley. This would allow the Federals to throw pontoon bridges across the Tennessee at Chattanooga and at some likely place west of Lookout Mountain. The steamboats would haul supplies between Stevenson and Bridgeport in northeast Alabama and the landing at Kelly's Ferry. Kelly's Ferry lay on the south bank of the Tennessee River, west of Raccoon Mountain. From there, a good wagon road led six miles through Cummings Gap to either Brown's Ferry or the mouth of Lookout Creek, where, by way of pontoon bridges, it would only be another two or three miles into Chattanooga. Rosecrans' plan depended on three essential elements. One, the completion of the steamboats. Two, the arrival of sufficient troops to seize and hold Lookout Valley. And three, the availability of enough pontoons to bridge the river twice. Each component had to be in place before he could act. The new steamboats were of simple design, but they would serve the Federals well. Rosecrans pre-planned for five boats, but eventually a dozen would be built at Stevenson. The first Michigan engineers and mechanics provided most of the labor. They completed the first boats around the second week of October, which is when Rosecrans began pressing Hooker to move into Lookout Valley. The chance to serve in the Western Theater gave Hooker, like Baldy Smith, a chance to redeem his career. Hooker's resignation as commander of the Army of the Potomac had been accepted just three days before the Battle of Gettysburg, but he remained a ranking major general with considerable political clout, so he was chosen to command the combined 11th and 12th Corps detachment being sent to reinforce Rosecrans. This situation pleased neither Oliver Otis Howard nor Henry Slocum, who commanded the two corps. Hooker had accused Howard of neglect and incompetence at Chancellorsville, 
while Slocum detested Hooker and believed he should have been given command of the reinforcements instead of Hooker. Whatever simmering animosity lay between the three men, it didn't affect the transfer of the troops. The first of the men from 11th Corps detrained at Bridgeport on the afternoon of September 30th, just seven days after Abraham Lincoln had approved the movement. Howard arrived on October 2nd. Hooker reached Stevenson the next day. The movement to Bridgeport and Stevenson was suddenly interrupted when Joe Wheeler's Confederate cavalry raid descended upon the line of the Nashville and Chattanooga between Murfreesboro and Shelbyville. As we talked about a few episodes ago, while the damage inflicted on the rail line wasn't great, it did slow Hooker's operation in two ways. First, it forced him to divert a division of 12th Corps troops to guard the tracks between Nashville and Stevenson. Second, it delayed the forwarding of Hooker's supply wagons. A 19th century army in the field was no less dependent on roads than any modern force, and perhaps more so. While the infantry moved on foot, the ammunition, food, and other supplies that kept such a force functioning required wagons. Hooker's two corps required something like 500 wheeled vehicles of various types. And, as of early October, all of those vehicles were still in transit. In fact, most were still on flat cars on rail lines north of the Ohio River. In messages to Chattanooga as late as October 22nd, Hooker was citing his lack of wagons as the primary reason for delaying his movement into Lookout Valley. The one benefit of Wheeler's October raid was that Slocum, who had no desire to serve under Hooker ever again, remained up at Murfreesboro to command the troops detailed to guard the rail line. If Wheeler's rebel cavalry hadn't raided up into Middle Tennessee that October, perhaps Rosecrans would have had a chance to implement his plan before he was relieved of command. Or perhaps not, since even if Hooker's movement hadn't been interrupted and delayed, there was still the need for both the steamboats and the pontoons to be ready. Until all three elements of the plan were in place, Initiating the operation to reopen Chattanooga's supply line would be premature and would serve only to broadcast the Federal's intentions to the Confederates. In any case, Rosecrans was sacked before the plan became action. The order removing him arrived in Chattanooga on October 19th. He departed early on the 20th, making the difficult journey over Walden's Ridge, and then on the 22nd met Grant at Stevenson. After meeting with William Rosecrans, Ulysses S. Grant began his own arduous journey to Chattanooga, traversing the same roads through the Sequatchie Valley and up over Walden's Ridge. A storm had just swept through that morning with fierce wind-driven rain, but Grant had his crutches strapped to his saddle and set out. His party rode through mud sometimes up to the horses' bellies, struggled through swollen streams, and passed numerous broken-down wagons and countless dead mules. The next day, Grant's mount slipped in the mud descending Walden's Ridge, 
causing him intense pain in his already injured left leg. Despite that mishap, Grant reached the Army of the Cumberland's headquarters shortly after dark on the evening of October 23rd, where he met with George Thomas. Lieutenant Colonel James Wilson, an engineer officer on Grant's staff, later described the first meeting between the two men as difficult, with both Thomas and Grant seemingly, quote, glum and ill at ease. Wilson had preceded Grant into town and spent the previous night with his friend, Captain Horace Porter, who was an ordnance officer on Thomas's staff. When they heard Grant had arrived, both men quickly made their way over to Thomas's headquarters on Walnut Street, where they found Grant sitting in front of the fireplace, quote, steaming from the heat over a small puddle which had run from his sodden clothing. And then, just as an example of how first-hand accounts of the same event often differ and therefore make it difficult for a historian to decipher what actually happened, here Wilson and Porter left very different versions of this first meeting between Grant and George Thomas. Wilson thought Thomas was intentionally snubbing Grant, perhaps because Thomas was resentful of the fact that Grant had been promoted over himself and at Rosecrans' expense. However, Porter thought otherwise, saying, quote, General Thomas's mind had been so intent upon receiving the commander and arranging for a conference of officers that he had entirely overlooked his guest's travel-stained appearance. Porter notes that once an aide pointed out the condition of Grant's uniform, Thomas offered Grant a change of clothes, which he refused. Wilson also recalled that Grant was offered nothing to eat until he himself suggested it, but Porter recalled that Grant had already, quote, partaken of a light supper immediately after his arrival. While the specific differences in the two accounts seem fairly minor, the suggested tone is quite different. Wilson's account gives the impression of George Thomas being cold and aloof, almost sulking, while Porter suggests nothing of the sort. In any case, it's interesting, and if Grant was offended, he didn't say so in writing. And both Wilson's and Porter's accounts first appeared many years after the two principals were long dead. Unfortunately for historians, no one seems to have left a contemporary account of this first meeting between Grant and Thomas. Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana, who was also present, merely wired Edwin Stanton that Grant had arrived at Chattanooga and was, quote, wet, dirty, and well. At any rate, matters soon turned to strategy. Between the time of Rosecrans' departure from Chattanooga on October 20th and Grant's arrival on the evening of the 23rd, Baldy Smith had secured Thomas's approval to continue preparations for implementing the resupply plan. Smith had been inspecting the banks of the Tennessee River, seeking a suitable site for the second leg of the supply route between Kelly's Ferry and wherever the river could be best bridged west of Lookout Mountain. In the end, Smith liked Brown's Ferry for this much better than the mouth of Lookout Creek not the least for the range of high hills lining the south bank at that point. If those hills could be seized by federal troops and fortified quickly, it would secure the bridge site from any rebel counterattack. 
By the time Grant reached Chattanooga, Smith said, quote, the plan for opening the river had matured. Smith and others on Thomas's staff now began to brief their new boss on the plan. Grant listened thoughtfully. Porter recalled that, quote, Grant sat for some time as immovable as a rock and as silent as a sphinx. Then Grant, quote, straightened himself up and manifesting a deep interest in the discussion, he began to fire whole volleys of questions at the officers present. Porter noted that with those questions, Grant demonstrated, quote, the quickness of his perception. In any case, Grant liked what he heard. Once the plan was reviewed and approved, arrangements were made for him to personally inspect the Army's lines the next morning, and after writing some dispatches, he turned in. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Impulse of Command, Ulysses S. Grant at Chattanooga by David A. Powell. All of Powell's books on Chickamauga and Chattanooga are first-rate, but this one, which focuses on Grant's time at Chattanooga and his actions and decisions and leadership, is excellent. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then as we wrap up this episode, we want to thank the newest member of the Strawfoot Brigade, Mikey G, for his support of the podcast. Just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water. And we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey everyone, just a reminder that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Founded in 1881, the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War is a congressionally chartered, charitable, fraternal organization that preserves the history and legacy of the Union veterans who fought during the Civil War to preserve the Union and end slavery. When you join, you enter a national network of men who form lifelong bonds, honor their heroic ancestors, and promote historic preservation, education, and patriotism in their communities. Based on the principles of fraternity, charity, and loyalty, they accept both descendants of Civil War veterans and non-descendants. Visit them today at www. .suvcw.org or email them at join at suvcw.org. The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast 
are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the sons of Union veterans of the Civil War. What if I say that Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs were published by Samuel Clemens? Well, that would be us and not the sons of the Union what veterans. What if I said that Samuel Clemens is best known by his pen name, Mark Twain? Again, that would be us and not the sons of the Union well, veterans. What if I said my favorite Mark Twain quote is, Suppose you are an idiot, and suppose you were a member of Congress, but I repeat myself. Rich. <laughs> <laughs>